Hey guys, Joey Svensson, one of the hosts of the podcast, bringing you a few notes, some happy stuff before the legendary Sarah Wolf kicks off this somber episode. You'll see in the show notes a link to an early bird special on a new VIP things you won't hear on a Sunday podcast feed in which you give us money that all goes to a nonprofit we'll be telling you a bit more about in a future episode and we'll send you a private podcast feed where you'll get these normal Seacoast episodes that you already have enjoyed listening to, but you'll also acquire exclusive content, conversations we've already started recording. And let's just say as host, I don't know how we pulled it off, but we feel even a little more loose. So this is still in the development. There's a few more perks that we're excited to offer, but if you want to get in early and be locked in for 20% off forever, go to the show notes and click join VIP early to get locked in forever on this deal because we haven't really gotten rolling. We want to go ahead and give a discounted rate. Also, have a little fun with us. Go to our Facebook group. This link is in the show notes as well to the latest post. Nominate a few of your favorite discussions or guests that we had on this podcast in 2023. We're going to make our own little listening community top 10. I tell you what, we will have five winners. We'll take a draw. We'll have a drawing and have five winners. So all you have to do is submit one of your favorites to be entered into some pretty cool prizes. So now you can be a patron of the podcast. We're forming our listening communities, top 10 favorite episodes. And last year we had a Valentine's five episode special. It's interesting stuff for all, even if you're not in the lovey-dovey season of life. Guys, after the theme song, please listen carefully to the warning. Thanks for listening and supporting this podcast. Just because I don't believe or agree doesn't mean I can't learn from you. Why did you have to bring that up? Okay, (laughs) that one I'm super embarrassed about. (laughs) Do you like me? Do I like you? As as an individual or as a a person? No, I like you. Okay, cool, cool. And I don't have any interest in appearing to be stronger than I am. I ain't bowed a Nebuchadnezzar statue. He gonna leave. You feel me? How do we love people who see the world differently than we do? What would it look like if we truly loved all of our neighbors? Could listening to their stories be the first step? This is Seacoast Church, and there's way more to talk about. There's no easy way to enter into this discussion. It's one of those real-life stories that represents a topic that feels better to just not think about it. But when there are so many victims, and when we see firsthand that there really is no guaranteed safe places for children, not even in churches, the discussion is warranted. Let this thought sink in. Every 68 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted, and every nine minutes, that victim is a child. Meanwhile, only 25 out of every 1,000 perpetrators will end up in prison. The story you'll hear today, it gets worse. The abuse happened at the hands of a respected woman in a church family that Justin Woodbury, a child at the time, counted himself a part of. The harm caused to Justin was way more devastating than it needed to be. In fact, had this church been centered in true, life-freeing gospel truth, the life-altering and disastrous results the abuse had on Justin could have been greatly mitigated. Now an adult, Justin joins the podcast as a speaker and advocate for survivors of emotional and sexual abuse. 
Through his story shared in his book, Sheltered But Not Protected, Learning to Love, Forgive, and Heal After Emotional and Sexual Abuse, we learn a very difficult lesson. No man, no woman, no organization, not even a church, is without the great need of continual redemption by a good God who wills no harm on anyone. It's also a reminder that no person or group of persons can exist and function outside of the realm of possibility to commit the evilest of deeds when operating outside of the spirit of life Jesus gives to all who will ask. All of humanity and all groups of people who always need, always have needed, and always will need a Savior, one who saves all from misdeeds, but one who is also willing to save each person from the great impact and harm as the results of misdeeds done against each of us. The following story is Justin's journey of being sexually victimized as a child. It's a story that almost ended up in complete ruin, but at the hands of a great Savior, has been and is being restored. We must listen closely to these stories, as they are too common not to. They can happen right in front of our noses, oftentimes the predator being one who we least expected. May this episode be heard as a tribute to those who fight the battle of overcoming the disaster of being sexually violated and abused as children. Thank you, Justin, for sharing your story. Those who have been a victim of abuse, please proceed with caution. This discussion is also too heavy for children. Justin, thanks for being on here with us, man. This is a tough subject to talk about. Is it still tough for you? I mean, you kind of do this regularly. You wrote a book, but is it still tough to revisit? You know, it gets easier as time goes on. Uh, Every time I retell my story, it gets uh, a little bit easier, but it's still, it's not a fun topic for sure. Right. No, for sure. All right. Well, before we dive into the story, give us a little bit of your background. Where'd you grow up? Yeah. I grew up on the west side of Ann Arbor, Michigan, on a small semi-working farm. I had two loving parents uh, that cared very much about my sister and I. Just had one sister. I can't remember a time where I wasn't in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday evening, Thursday. Yeah, Wednesday. I was going to say, you got to say that Wednesday evening. (laughs) Yep. Uh, Thursday visitation, Saturday morning men's prayer meeting, Saturday night men's prayer meeting. So very, very much involved in uh, in the church from this, as long as I can remember. Yeah, I would go to churches, Justin, where if if you stayed home to watch the Super Bowl, you were made to feel pretty bad about it. It's like, no, we have church on yep. Sunday nights. Yep. You can go see the second half. Yep. That, that was exactly <laughs> the, the same. Mine was an independent fundamental Baptist. So, yep. Independent fundamentalist Baptist church. Mm-hmm. So distinguish that from just a regular Baptist church. Like, so it's not connected to the was Southern Baptist convention. Is that what it's That's called? That's exactly right. So there's a lot of different conventions and groups and the independent fundamental. Uh, what makes them stand apart is that they're not part of any specific group. So they don't have to adhere to, and they're not accountable to, and they're separate from any other movement. They're, they're truly independent, which um, makes for zero accountability, which was a huge problem, is a huge problem. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think one of the acrostics or one of the things in, in Baptist is, uh, individual soul liberty. Uh, and, and we just took that to the, to the next level where we're not accountable to any man. Um, where we are our own individual entity and we do what we believe is right. Which is why you, 
call it cult-like. Exactly. <laughs> I was yep. going to ask you, well, why do you call it yep. cult-like? You just answered yeah. it. Now, is there is is there one person who's calling the shots? Or- so it was not an eldership. There was one main pastor, and he had absolute authority. Um, he had a, a group of deacons around him. And, and I know this is cliche, but this was truly the case. They were yes men. Um, every single one of them. Right agreed with what the pastor said. So there was, again, there's zero accountability and he had absolute authority. I'm guessing if they did not agree, they would eventually get the boot. Yes. Would be my guess. If they didn't agree, they wouldn't have even been allowed to be on the deacon board. I mean, he, they are very carefully chosen as people who would, you know, he would say jump. They would say how high. Oh man. Dangerous ground right there. So it sounds like the use of the word Baptist and I'm and I'm not likening your church to Westboro, but it seems like both organizations are just using the word Baptist without permission, so to speak, not connected to uh, yeah. the denomination. Yeah, that's fair. So 1998. How old are you then? 1998. I just turned 17. 17. Am I mistaken? That was the first incident of sexual abuse. So that, that was the main instance. Um, there was grooming and there was things that happened leading up to that. So the first, you know, the first instance of grooming was when I was 13. Uh, the first questionable incident took place when I was 15, but the first full blown, no questions, like we knew exactly what was going on was yeah, when I was 17, junior in high school. Okay. And I want to get into as, as much of it as you're willing to, but up until the first thing that you can trace back and, and realize, oh, wow, that, that was, that was not a good thing. Things are off the path here. Was your church experience a positive one? Yes, it was. It was. Um, I didn't know any better. And so, you know, the church experiences, and I, I feel like your audience will understand this. I, I speak on a lot of different podcasts, but this is the first actually religious one I've ever been on. So I feel like your audience can understand this, Joey. It was a church full of first generation Christians that desperately wanted something different for their kids. And they had ex- gone through, you know, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll era and experienced a lot of hurt. And so what they wanted for their kids for the next generation was the opposite of that. And so as a result, they ran the church in um, reaction to that. Um, but they, I believe at the beginning, it, it was a sincere situation. It was easier to say, you know, thus saith the Lord, or, you know, the Bible says that, you know, any reference to alcohol is grape juice, unless it's a bad reference, then it's alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when it came to dress dress, you know, code and things like that, it was easier for them to say, God says that women shouldn't wear pants. Um, and so as young kids, that's what we were taught. And again, I believe that there is some sincerity there. The problems began when we became teenagers and started questioning, hey, my Bible, I don't see that in the Bible. And then it it turned into do as I say, yours is not to question why, yours is but to do or die. But long answer to your short question, um, it was a good experience leading up to that. It was just the teen years gotcha. and, and later on that it turned terrifying. Yeah, I, I grew up in, it doesn't sound near as unhealthy as, as what we're about to dive into, but it was like, you just said, where where are you getting this yeah. stuff? Like we, we eventually left the church, 
But I mean, it went so far as to our pastor actually said on a Sunday morning that he does not believe that anyone would go to heaven unless they were instrumental in getting someone else to heaven. Mm. It's like, whoa, where'd you get that one from? Mm. Like, that's not in the Bible. That sounds pretty work based, but wow. I just want to leave some room here for you to go into the story, give us as as much or as little as you want. I, I just want to say this up top as your brother in Christ, man, I'm very sorry that you had to walk through this. I personally have zero reference point as to what you've experienced. And so please forgive me if any of my line of questioning seems insensitive. It's just out of ignorance, but I'm sorry you you went through this. And thank you. You know, having attended the church, um, one of the things that we kind of experienced was um, all adults had authority over the children. And so there was this teaching where you know, you don't ask why you un- it's unquestionable obedience to the pastor and to the adults. And so there's a particular family that was part of our church uh, named the family. And the wife, Mrs. was uh, a faithful churchgoer. She wore the long dresses. She sang in the choir. She was one of the first ones at the old fashioned altar. When there was an altar call, uh, she played in the orchestra. She worked in the nursery. She was a Sunday school teacher. She was a babysitter. Uh, for us, she was just a um, an upstanding member, trusted member of the church. Well, when I was 13, she began, and she admitted later on, this is when this obsession started, uh, but she began grooming me. And it was just something as innocent as she would just sit down with me after church um, and ask me about my day, ask me about my likes, my dislikes, my hobbies, what I wanted to do when I grew up. And she was an, an an adult, and it was rare for adults to sit down with teens. But it was all out in the open. It was all innocent enough. So, and is she in her twenties, thirties? Uh, she was in her thirties. Yeah. Okay. When I was seventeen, the the particular situation that happened was she. I was being homeschooled at the time, and she uh, called our house. I picked up the phone. She was looking to talk to my mom, who was one of her best friends, and my mom was gone grocery shopping. And so right when I went to go hang up the phone, she said, oh, by the way, I had a dream about you last night. And I said, really? Well, what was it about? And she's like, oh, I can't tell you. And I'm like, no, no, tell me. It's okay. You know, she's like, no, I I probably shouldn't tell you. You're too young to hear about it. And so she teased me with that. Um, And just to put it in context, not that I'm um, making excuses for myself or anything, because I don't feel like I need to excuse what took place. But I was a 17 year old who had never had a girlfriend, never been allowed to interact with girls in any kind of way. Um, And so I was very, very curious. And so I started begging her, please, you know, tell me what this dream was about. Anyways, long story short with that the dream was of a sexual nature she her, she said that her husband had died and that her and i had uh gotten married and that i was the best sex that she had ever had that turned into a uh a two to three month sexual i don't even want to call it a relationship but it turned into this really sexual twisted time where it, she began um, the the began a sexual relationship, and it ended with her actually wanting to fulfill that dream. Where you you know our church didn't believe in divorce and remarriage, 
And so in her mind, the only way that we could be together long term was for her husband to die. And she actually began to conspire to have me um, kill him so her and I could get married and and live together. And Have you kill mm-hmm. him? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's what that's what happened. Any question that you'd rather just not go into is totally fine. But like, how did this become a reoccurring deal? Was it something in which she would invite you over to her house or? That's a really good question, Joey. And and it's really important, especially for people who are still attending church and and probably your listeners um, and parents in general. Uh, 90% of everything that happened was either at church or at my house, just in the next room. People think of, you know, dangerous places like a dark alley or at a bar or something at night in the middle of, you know, a dark road or whatever. And this happened at church in the hallway, um, right outside the church in the other room when my parents were in the kitchen, it'd be in the bed, you know, the, the living room or, um, in my bedroom or outside, uh, and in the barn, you know, there's just ways that she put herself in a position to be alone with me. She would, you know, innocently ask, Hey, I heard, I know that you just got new carpet in your room. Can you go show it to me? And I'd be like, okay. And we'd go upstairs and then something would take place. And, you know, it was always, she would ask me those questions right in front of my parents. And because she was trusted and my parents didn't think anything of it, it would, it would happen. Did it turn into full blown intercourse? It never turned into full blown intercourse, but there was oral sex and other things. But yeah, I, you know, I, yep. I never actually had the, the traditional intercourse sex with her. Um, it stopped thankfully yep. before that, but I mean, such a, at a young age, what's going through your mind? Are you thinking, okay, well, the church obviously trusts this w- woman. So I guess this is okay. My, my, like I said, from the beginning of the conversation, I don't have context for this. So my yeah. mind, the wheels are turning and I'm like, why didn't you go straight to your parents the, the very yeah. first time something concrete happened? Yeah, that's such a good question. You know, as I think about that, as I get older and and, and asks myself those same questions, uh, you kind of hit the nail on the head. It, because she was a trusted adult, it was okay. And, and the reason I say that is, you know, even that summer before, when I was 16, I was working uh, for a a guy that owned a tow truck company and he had a couple of girls that worked there as well. And they did everything they could to try to um, have a sexual relationship with me. It was just a not necessarily a good place to work. And they tried very hard and I had no problem saying, nope, not interested in just running, you know, being a Joseph, right? Like running the other way. Yeah having nothing to do with that. It, well, there's no question. It's like, I'm going to save myself from marriage. We grew up in the purity culture um, and even right. holding hands before marriage was taboo. The minute an older, trusted adult who was my mom's best friend did this, there was not even a question of like, is this right or wrong? It's like, it, it must be right. It must be okay because this adult is saying so. So this... I. I, I, there's a little hesitancy in, in asking this question, but did it ever get so twisted in your mind to where there were actually mixed emotions from a standpoint of 
you're an adolescent teen. And so your body is created to experience pleasure when it comes to encounters along these lines. Was there ever confusion as far as I like this? but I'm confused and I feel dirty or was it just, was there ever any confusion as far as you enjoying? That's a question. That's a good question. Um, A fair question. If you talk to most people who have been in these situations, guys and girls, they'll all say, including myself, did I enjoy it? Yeah. Um, I was 17. I was curious as just as curious as the next person, uh, the difference between me and a lot of other 17 year old kids is they, their curiosity was satisfied by having girlfriends their own age or we were so sheltered that even watching, uh, I, I remember watching Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and during the kissing scene, somebody held up a pillow, um, to block it. Um, <laughs> and so there's this curiosity. I think there. they made out in the Lego. I think they made out in the Lego. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Um, but there's this, so there's this wild curiosity. And so, yeah, th- there was an element of, of yes, feeling dirty and very confused and, um, even angry at times after the fact and stuff. But during when it was, when it was happening, I mean, yeah, there was, it was enjoyable, um, to a certain yeah. extent. And was there any dialoguing between you and this woman up? About what you guys were doing, not during the times, but was there things said like, hey, Justin, this is this is normal. This is fine. You know, I can't remember of any specific incidences where she reassured me because I didn't um, I didn't ask for reassurance um, because, like I said, I felt like it was OK. Part of the twisted aspect of of what happened is we would be having phone sex in one minute in the next moment she would be talking to me about how she's like you just need to grow up and serve the lord and um be in the ministry and and whatever so oh my certainly just weird really messed up mixed signals and so to answer your question there's never any necessarily reassurance um but definitely this weird mentoring still in between, like like I said, this dirty, you know, talking interaction um, for, to switch from that to um, a spiritual challenge, um, you know, make sure you're obeying your parents, Gosh. make sure you're serving God because you don't want to look back on your life with regrets and stuff like that. So in a roundabout way, I guess, yes, but not directly. How did this end? Did you finally go to your parents? Like what happened? Yeah, there's a, a specific time. When she happened to show up at my best friend's house when we were unloading, I, my buddy and I, my best friend and I owned a landscaping business at the time. And um, we were unloading a truck full of mulch at his parents' house and she happened to show up. She followed us to the car wash when we went to go get the truck washed out. And she said, get in. So I wound up getting in the back of her car. She took me into the woods and I just you know, during this entire time, I experienced a lot of firsts and really a lot of lasts. I mean, there's still things to this day that I won't do, um, even with my wife in the sanctity of her own, you know, marital relationship. And so there's a yeah. lot of things that happened in the woods. And I, I talk about it more uh, in my book, but I just remember walking away from that, then feeling really, really dirty and disgusted and confused and, and just calling her up and saying, um, and I know this sounds weird, but hey, let's can we still be friends? But let's let's not do that other stuff anymore. And then she got very serious and she's like, if you ever 
repeat any of what took place between us. I will lie and I will drag you through the mud. Nobody will believe you. Everyone will believe me because you're a rebellious teenager. I am a trusted, respected member of the church. So yes, I will leave you alone, but don't you ever repeat it else you'll be sorry. And so I didn't for an entire year. I just kept it to myself and I became this angry, confused teen. Uh, interestingly enough, my parents thought that it was because of um, my best friend. They thought he was a bad influence on me. So they stopped us from hanging around each other. They said, you guys can't be best friends anymore. And so I had to start <sighs> hanging around with my parents while my parents were hanging around more and more with the family. So for that next year, even though I wanted to run as far as I could away from this abuser, um, I was with her more than ever in front of my parents. And so it was just a horrible time. But I'm thankful for a father who I considered a best friend as well growing up, somebody that I felt like I could come to about anything. And what happened, Joey, I'll just explain it real quick. Um, I graduated from being homeschooled. And since we didn't have an official senior trip, um, I wound up, um, my parents sent me to my sister and I to Arizona to visit our cousins. While we were there, you know, we were thousands of miles away from where I grew up. And it was just a nice, it was, it was after my, my senior open house where Carolyn made my, um, made my senior, my uh, graduation cake. I didn't even have any of my own graduation cake because she made it and she was there and hanging around. And so I was away from all that. I was enjoying it. And one day when I woke up, we we had gone, gone off with my cousins and played. When we came back, my aunt said, hey, you guys got some mail from uh, Mrs. Yeah. And she had sent my sister and I a postcard saying, here, dear Justin and Shannon, you know, I've been praying for you while you're away and I, I pray that God keeps you safe and um, whatever. And it it terrified me, Joey, because even uh, thousands of miles away, she was able to get my aunt and uncle's address and send us a postcard. And it just freaked me out to the point where shortly after that, I was in the field uh, d- digging uh, something with my dad. And I was like, Dad, I got to tell you. And so I wound up uh, telling him the whole thing. He wasn't one bit surprised. In fact, um, right when the whole thing began happening, he saw an interaction between uh, Carolyn and myself. And he actually sat us down as a family. He said, Justin, stay away from that woman. And my mom said, Stan, quit making like he, she, she said, you're a pervert. Like, if you think that there's something going on, you're you're a pervert. And so my dad had kind of predicted it. Um, and so it was easy for me to go back to him and say, Dad, you were right. And this is what happened. So did he just relinquish those suspicions because your your parents were hanging out with these guys? So did he just kind of default to your mom saying, I guess she's right? Yeah, he just quit. It. He just stopped saying anything after that. Yeah. I had asked him to keep it a secret. Uh, he agreed to do it. Um, I was 18 at the time. I go back and forth with, as to whether or not he should have, but he did. And then I went, I went to college and the, my freshman year of college, uh, the second semester, right before spring break, he called me up and he's like, Hey, I've kept my end of the deal. I've kept this a secret, but now it's time for you to say something to the pastor because she's starting to prey on other young men in the church. 
And so spring break of my freshman year, I sat down with my pastor. Uh, if it's all right, I'll take the time to explain what happened there because this, if, if there's ever yeah. a, a guideline on how not to handle abuse as a pastor or as anybody, um, this would be it. So we sat down, you know, we were out to breakfast. I very casually just said, Hey, um, I just wanted to let you know there's some concerns about Mrs. Uh, I think that um, she's not a very good person or something like that. And he's like, well, what makes you say that? And I'm like, well, you know, just the way I see her interacting with other boys and stuff. So I was, I was trying to be very whatever. And so he's like, well, did she ever do anything inappropriate with you? And I say, yes. And he's like, well, did she ever touch you? And I said, yes. And he said, did you, she ever touch you below the waist or above the waist? And I said, below the waist. And he said, inside the pants or outside the pants? I said, inside the pants. And from that point, he just started asking question after question about the situation. And it got to the point where he was, he knew what he needed to do. There was enough information where he didn't need to know more, but he still kept pressing and he wanted to know all the dirty details. And, you know, I'm shaking and I, I'm like terrified. And so finally I just started lying to him. He's like, well, anything else, you know, did she ever give you oral sex or whatever? And I was like, nope, nope, nope. And I, I just, because I, I didn't want to talk about it anymore. In my mind, it was like, you know, you know enough information to deal with it. Like, quit asking these perverted questions. When I got done telling him everything and he got done asking me all the questions, he scored the blame 49% to 51%, giving her the 51% because she was the older person, but 49% to me because I wasn't a Joseph. And then he told me, he said, Justin, um, over the next several months, I'm going to ask you to do many things that you're not going to like, you're not going to understand, you're not going to agree with. But remember, I am God's umbrella of protection over you. As long as you obey what I say, even if I'm wrong, God will protect you and bless you because you're under that umbrella of protection. And so you need to do exactly as I say, no questions asked. And I said, okay. And so, um, you know, the first step was I had to tell my mom what had happened. And then the second step was I had to write a letter of apology to her husband, um, apologizing to him for stealing his wife. And he came in the office and I had to read it to him. And it was this whole uh, big thing. Uh, she was also Good confronted gosh. about it. Yeah, she was confronted about it. She denied that it happened. Um, then she finally admitted it. And she had to write a letter of apology. So we were equal, both equally punished. And then um, that was it. You know, as a mandated reporter, it was never reported to the police. Um, I never received counseling. Uh, the, the extent of counseling was, are you repentant for what you did wrong? If yes, then let's move on. If no, then we need to make sure you realize how horrible you, what you did was horrible. And then, you know, once they were satisfied that I was, um, sorry and repentant, um, like the example of David in the Bible, then I could be restored. And so, you know, eventually I was, but there is no kind of counseling like, like a normal kid would get now today, probably because we've come so far in realizing, Hey, you know, minors can't give consent. This is extremely emotionally disturbing for somebody. It's terrifying. It's terrorizing. So golly, I, I, yeah, that's, that's hard to, wrap my mind around. So was there motivation from this pastor to also keep things hush hush mm -hmm. for the reputation of the church? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because we were 
independent. We wanted the government, the police, anybody to stay. I mean, they were public enemy number one. We So we wanted nothing to do with that. And bringing that to the police's attention, I mean, between the sexual abuse of a minor and even, I mean, I, I don't know if they could have gotten conspiracy to murder stick, but I mean, that, that did happen. She would have been in jail and it would have made our church look really bad and it would have, it was unwanted attention to our church. So the motivation was, you know, let's just brush it under the rug. Um, let's not report it to the authorities. Let's not make it a big deal. It wasn't even brought before the church. It was just kept hush hush. Uh, interestingly enough, the family wound up leaving the church, but it was against my pastor's um, command. He, he told them that they needed to stay in the church and continue to attend the church and be restored through our church. Um, but there, there's the motivation there to keep it, to sweep it under yeah. the rug and to keep it hush hush for sure. Now, are your, are your parents both still alive? Yes. So I obviously, I don't know your dad and this is zero disrespect to your dad, but did you ever struggle with blaming your dad for, for not being more diligent with his suspicion? Like, do you have to grapple with that? No, you yeah. know, I, I, I did struggle with blaming both of them, not not being more diligent in their their suspicion. Um, I mean, my mom, maybe for not deferring to my dad and saying, hey, that Justin, this is the case, because she continued to invite Carolyn over after that whole conversation. And we continued getting together. And uh, if we hadn't, maybe some of this wouldn't have happened. The, the thing I struggled with the most is how they handled it after they found out what had happened. Uh, there, there should have been counseling for me. And, you know, part of my story, part of what I talk about in my book is the next 20 years of becoming obese and, you know, um, struggling with it, being addicted to food. And that wouldn't have, if I had gotten the proper counseling, the proper counseling, it probably wouldn't have happened. If she had been reported to the authorities, I think there would have been a little bit more closure, but for it to just have gone hush hush under, but swept under the rug and moving on in life as normal. I struggled more with bitterness towards them for that, them not pushing yeah. it further. Was that motivated by an allegiance to the pastor and the church mm -hmm. and his umbrella of authority? Yeah. He didn't, rec he didn't gotcha. recommend it, so they didn't even question it. My goodness. All right. So I do want to touch on how far the murder talks went. And were you ever at a place where you were receiving this this plan, yeah. so to speak. Byron. Yeah, you know, in 1996, 97, 98, I don't know when the Anarchist Cookbook came out, but th there's this, uh, and I'm not extremely familiar with all, all I know is that my best friend had a copy of the Anarchist Cookbook on a floppy disk, and he had given it to me, and I had started <laughs> yeah. researching, you know, how to make a bomb and stuff because I wanted to blow up some stumps in the backfield when we were trying to um, plow and make some areas and stuff. So it was all very innocent. I had no plans on doing anything bad. But there's a particular uh, recipe that involved nicotine and putting it liquid nicotine in somebody's coffee and it was untraceable, but it would kill somebody instantly and stuff. And so I had been telling, you know, part of, you know, I mentioned that she would, Carolyn would come and sit down with me and ask about my hobbies and interests and wants. Well, somewhere along the lines, I had told her about this anarchist cookbook that I had found and how I thought it was really cool with these different bomb recipes. And I'm like, yeah, and there's this even this one recipe where you can put nicotine in someone's coffee. And so one day after um, a sexual encounter, she began crying 
And she's like, it just breaks my heart knowing that one day I'll be sitting in the audience while another woman's walking down the aisle and you're saying I do and giving your love and your body to her. Uh, that'll just break my heart. And she said, unless uh, there's a way for you and I to get married. And she's like, of course, you know, uh, Fred couldn't, I mean, I, we couldn't get married and divorced because how could you ever be, you know, how could you ever do ministry um, if if you were married to a divorced woman? So we can't do that. She's like, so what if Fred was not in the picture? And I said, well, what are you suggesting? She's like, well, tell me a little bit more about that, you know, nicotine in, in the coffee recipe. And so I told her about it. She's like, what if we were to do that? And I, I remember at that point, um, not knowing if she was serious, um, but, you know, the talk of marriage and, and all of that was just, it freaked me out. The talk of murder, of course, freaked yeah. me out as well. And so I quickly changed the subject and I don't remember that she ever brought it up again, but it was there and it was something yeah. that I know looking back, I know if I had pressed on, it could have turned out differently. So I, I'm, I'm kind of backing up here and thinking of predatory, sexual predatory behavior, big umbrella. So, uh, you know, little kids and, and, and all of it. And I'll frame it as, do you think? Because I, there, I guess there's no way of, of, of knowing, but you obviously, you're, an advocate for stopping this stuff. So I'm sure you've thought about it yeah. more. Is it a mental disorder? Does this woman or do other predators, do they think to themselves, this is good for the child too, because we're sharing something special? Because I've thought before, it's like, first of all, is she not thinking I'm, I'm destroying Justin's life? Like he's going to need to put the pieces back together. This is, this is, going to devastate him. This is something that is going to mark his life. Like, is she thinking any of that? Man, that's a great question. I don't know what they think. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I tend to agree. It's a mental. Uh, I, I think there is a mental disorder there, you know, that I grappled with that when I struggled with forgiving her, which is ultimately what, you know, freed me and allowed me to, you know, lose over a hundred pounds and to, get my life back together. So I, I, I felt like, you know, by saying, I forgive you, I was saying what you did was okay. And what she did was not okay. And so I'm like, well, it was not okay. Like, was she a bad person? Did she just, you know, she, I guess supposedly she grew up and she had been molested as a child as well. And so is it just something where you, you revert back to that? I don't know. I, I think, mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of different things involved. I don't think she thought twice about how this would affect me though. I think, I think anybody that does that is very selfish, self-centered and doesn't think or care about what, you know, and she didn't care about her husband. She didn't care about her kids. You know, I, yeah. I've chosen to name her um, publicly in my book and on lots of other podcasts and her, I know, and I feel bad for her kids um, because it's not their fault, but her kids have been come at and attacked as a result of me naming her. And she also has been attacked. I don't feel bad for her. I think she deserves it. She's never once apologized. She's never once tried to make it right. But I don't think abusers, I think they couldn't care less about the victims. And I'm not the only victim. My wife's a victim. My family was a victim. Her family was a victim. I don't think they care. And if they do, they th what they want trumps what they care about. Yeah. And what was your line of thinking as far as naming her specifically? 
you know, I, I reached out privately to her pastor. So let me back up. When she left our church, um, our pastor never reached out to the pastor of the church that they joined and let them know what had happened. I didn't know if they knew or whatever, but it certainly wasn't because my pastor said anything. And so I reached out to that pastor uh, about five or six years ago and I said, hey, I just wanted to let you know there is a predator attending your church. He never wrote back. And so I called and I got the voicemail and I said, hey, I reached out. I don't know if I got the wrong email address so you didn't get it or, or it went to spam, but there's a predator in your a congregation that I would like to talk to you about it. I got an email a few days later from this pastor condemning and criticizing the tone of my email. And he said, you should have written it like this, dear pastor. I just, and he, he rewrote it for me. And I thought, and then he's like, who's the woman? And so I said, um, I told him about, you know, Carolyn, he's like, oh, He's like, from what it sounds like, this happened 20 years ago. Um, so why are you bringing it to my attention now? And he, he totally oh defended gosh. it and everything. And so I thought this woman. So his default, his default response was to critique yes. you on your approach yes. of the email and being honoring of his position yes. and not, holy crap, I'm so sorry that you went. Oh my God. 100%. And we wonder why. Yeah, we wonder why people are losing faith in the church because unfortunately they hear these stories yeah. and and not the good yeah. that comes out. The one couldn't Gosh. I couldn't agree more. That's exactly right. They hear those types of stories and sadly that's the default of a lot of churches and stuff. And so when I realized that, I realized this woman has probably been allowed to go on unchecked for the past 20 years. Who knows who else she has preyed on or is preying on. And so at that moment, I thought she doesn't deserve, because in my book, I changed everyone else's name. I, I didn't think that I needed to bring, you know, whatever to, you know, the way the pastor handled it and the way other people handle it. I changed everyone's name. But with her, I thought she doesn't deserve to have her name changed. She's never reached out. She's never said she was sorry. She should be on a sex predator list. If I can't make that happen because the statute of limitations is passed, the least I can do is put her name out there to let everyone know, hey, this is yep. who it is. I didn't do it out of bitterness. In fact, it wasn't until I forgave her that I felt comfortable putting her name out there because before that, I thought I thought I was just wanting to do it just to get back to her because I was bitter. But once I was able to truly forgive her and see clearly, I was like, no, her name needs to be out there. Yeah. How how did you come to a place of peace and forgiveness and how long did it take? Yeah, good question. So I started writing my book in 2017 and I knew that I could either write a book and air a bunch of people's dirty laundry and just piss a bunch of people off or I could really help other people who have grown up in a similar religious situation and show them how I worked through it and how I was able to move past it and, and thrive post, you know, abuse and everything. And so I opted out for the latter. And so before I wrote each chapter, I would pray and really ask God to search my heart and say, is anybody in this chapter somebody that you're bitter towards or you haven't forgiven or you have any malice or anger towards? And so for the first several chapters, I was able to say no and proceed. When I got to the chapter about writing about Carolyn, I couldn't write it. I couldn't, I couldn't move on. I was too angry. I hadn't forgiven her. You know, Emily and I had watched a movie. I can't remember the name of it, but it was like every Halloween, there's no consequences for a day. And when we got done, 
Emily said, what would you do if there are no consequences for a day? Because I would, and she talked about, you know, eating dessert or something like that. Emily's my wife, by the way. I said, well, if I had no consequences, I would fly to Ann Arbor, Michigan, find Carolyn, and I won't even, I'm too embarrassed to say what I said I would do, but it was horrifying. And it shocked me and it shocked Emily because she couldn't believe I would say something like that because I'm not a violent, any kind of a person like that. And it shocked both of us. And so that was my default. I was so angry and so unforgiving. I felt like she needed to suffer. And so I couldn't write the chapter. So I sat on it for months and months. And then um, I started having uh, nightmares. I started losing sleep. It was affecting my family. And I remembered a sermon I had heard preached one time where the guy was talking about forgiveness and uh, he mentioned, you know, forgiveness is like setting a prisoner free only to realize that you were the prisoner, that forgiveness isn't for the other person, it's for you. And uh, he, he mentioned specifically, you know, if you're not willing to forgive somebody, um, you should just say, God, I'm not willing, but I'm willing to be made willing. And so I was desperate and I thought, you know, I'll try that. And so I remember saying, God, I'm not willing to forgive Carolyn, but I'm willing for you to make me willing and that was all, that was all I did. That's all I prayed. And the next day was uh, the beginning of my birthday week. Um, my birthday week was always an excuse to eat out every night, to gorge, to eat lots of food. You know, that morning, Emily said, so where do you want to go for your birthday week? Um, what restaurant do you want to go to? And I said, you know, what if we were to just, um, stay in tonight? And she's like, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. I just don't feel like eating. And so I, I was just as confused as she was, and I didn't know why that happened. But uh, anyways, I, I found out over the next couple of months that something supernaturally had happened inside of me where I had truly forgiven. Uh, and I I was no longer angry. I no longer had this desire to hurt her or make her suffer or anything like that. Uh, and it, it really, it coincided too with, um, healthier eating habits. It's just weird how it happened, but there's just yeah. this, this forgiveness that I experienced. And I can only say it was supernatural because I, I mean, this was 20 years in coming and, uh, um, it wasn't getting any easier. It was just the, you know, you have kids and you realize like how messed up that situation was when you have kids and you, th you, you apply your situation to them. And so forgiveness wasn't, you know, time didn't heal all when it came to that. It was just, honestly, it was a, a, a miracle, miraculous thing that it happened. Yeah. Well, I'm happy. I'm happy it did. Let's, we'll, we'll take the, the church that I've been a part of for a very long time. We have zero uh, motivation to cover anything up that were to ever happen. We shudder at the thought of anything that happened to you happening here. What are things that we can do? And, and we had, you know, I don't know if you heard, but there was a church, a big church in South Carolina who had uh, a situation in their children's ministry where a kid was taken advantage mm -hmm. of. And so we stepped up our game big time and, and put a lot of policies in place. But what would you tell organizations? Uh, we'll stick with churches. What are some things that they can do in order to keep this kind of stuff from happening? Man, that's such a good question. 
obviously the the background checks um, are are a must, but a background check just might mean somebody hasn't gotten caught yet. Um, yeah. I think two people in a room at all times with children um, can eliminate a lot of that. Um, for Emily and myself, um, the people we like the most, we mistrust the most because predators, if you picture a predator, it's not the um, Hannibal Lecter, you know, type guy in, yeah. in a mask. It's a, yeah. it's a guy that looks like me and you that is, gets along with people. Ted Bundy yeah. is a great yeah, example. Yep, exactly. He, he's, they're that yeah. type. And so, um, just never trusting anyone. Um, you know, it's funny. My parents attend a church. They asked if, you know, when we were coming to visit, would you ever attend our church? And I said, absolutely not. And they said, why? And I said, do your nursery workers have background checks? And they're like, no. And I'm like, then that's why. And they're like, well, yeah. but the pastor's wife is the only nursery worker. And, and I thought the, re, the the fact that you would use that as an excuse as to why she doesn't have a background check because it's the pastor's wife. I'm like, she, of all people, she should be having, getting the background. She should be leading by example. But, you know, we tend to, to trust people in places of authority and whatever and, and stuff. And I, I would just say to churches, trust no one mm -hmm. and always be above board in that area. And then I would also just um, beg churches to where if something does happen, believe the survivor. And I, you know, you have to look into it too, Joey. I mean, I've, I, a perfect example is I have a stepsister that told my uh, told me that my dad had molested her and I kept it to myself for years. And finally, I confronted my dad on it. And he's like, what? I never I never did that. And um, he, she was confronted about it and she admitted that she had lied about it because she had some some excuse. So there are isolated incidents where people make stuff up. But man, I'll tell you, I, I would love it if I never had to be on another podcast telling about what happened to me. Like I, I'm not making yeah. this up and people, survivors don't make up stories. And so, you know, I've seen a lot of churches thinking that they were taking the high road by, by saying alleged and, um, whatever. And then trying to take, be balanced by saying, you know, we're praying for both the victim and the alleged purpose, you know, whatever. And it comes across as disingenuous and stuff. And I understand the church's position, but I, I think supporting believing survivors is paramount to, to healing yeah. and to just a church's reputation. Um, and I, I feel bad for churches and being put in those positions and stuff, but I, I, I think those things, yeah, just putting those in place. And then if it does happen, because it's, it's going to happen, um, because humans are depraved. Um, but when it does happen, really supporting, um, in all ways supporting the victim and the survivor. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you went to the pastor immediately, it, in my opinion, his response should have been, okay, well, this is a police matter. Yeah. Let's call in the authorities. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, just uh, sharing your story and writing this book is advocacy enough. But what does your advocacy look like in general? Like, what does your work entail? Yeah, I used to be a lot more involved on Facebook, you know, advocating for victims and stuff. Um, when I when I got my book out there, I you know, people will still reach out to me and I will um, push that because a lot of what I would say is in the book. I mean, there's this whole chapter on forgiveness and um, not just surviving but thriving um in that um i have a, a good career i'm the chief marketing officer of a large insurance organization um i've lost like i said i've lost over a hundred pounds 
And so um, I talk about all that in my book. So I, I push a lot of people to the book. Um, there was something about getting that book out there that that kind of finished a chapter in my healing journey. And whereas before I was deconstructing um, my background, deconstructing from the Bible and stuff, and trying to figure out what's true and what's not true, I'm reconstructing now and I'm searching mm-hmm. after truth. Um we're in a mega church here in Littleton, Colorado. And so um, I'm not as active of an advocate on Facebook, although I'm still, I'm, I'm guest speakers on podcasts in a couple of months. I'm going to be a guest speaker at a, uh, an abuse awareness convention. And so I'm, I'm, I'm doing that a little bit more than the, the posting on social media. Well, we're going to wrap this up here in a second. I've got a couple more questions. One is I am very careful with the language that I use when talking to someone who has experienced deep grief from losing a spouse or losing a child. Like there's never, I I don't think they would ever articulate it as I've been healed. Mm -hmm. Like there, there's always a wound. Would you put this in the same category? Like if someone said, well, brother, have you been healed Mm -hmm. from all of this? How how do you see the term healing when it comes to, because, because it it seems like this is, it's going to leave a permanent mark. It marks you. It does. Um, Healing is a process. I am continually healing. That's why I said that a, a chapter closed on my healing journey because I'm still on that journey. In fact, just a couple of uh, weeks ago, uh, my wife, Emily, went to um, went to give me a kiss and uh, I my back was up against the back or uh, the uh, the, um, back of our house. My back was up against it and I immediately I I just froze up and Emily sensed it because she knows me really well by now and she's like, did I trigger you? And I'm like, yes. And I can't figure out why. And it was because, um, you know, my, the first kiss I ever shared with another person was Carolyn throwing me up against a wall and sticking her tongue down my throat. And it was the most, um, I mean, you asked if it was enjoyable. It was the most unenjoyable thing I had ever experienced. I mean, to go from never having touched a woman to having her stick her tongue down your throat was just terrifying. And so if I feel backed into a corner, if I feel like I can't escape or something's being forced on me, I react. And that was just a couple of months ago. Um, this happened when I was yeah. 30, you know, 17, I'm 42. So to almost 25, um, years right. ago. And there are still triggers. Um, thankfully I have a, an amazing spouse who has learned those triggers and goes out of her way to avoid those. To your point, it's a journey. Um, and yeah. so I, you know, I feel like Time does heal all. Getting out of the abusive environment um, has helped. I mean, you can't heal if you're continuing to be abused. And so, you yeah. know, I but part of my journey was I when I got out of college, I went back to that same church I grew up in, and I was the the music director for ten or for six years. And the verbal emotional abuse that I experienced there was almost as bad as what had happened when I was 17 and in some ways worse. And so I'm still healing from that as well. But I can just say, you know, one day at a time, um, it's, it's a process. It's intentional. Um, it doesn't happen by default. It's intentional. There's been some counseling, uh, a supportive spouse is, is, has been just a, a godsend. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's, it's a journey. Do you wish her well? 
like it, when when you do stumble upon her name in your head, do you think I I hope that her her life is turning around for the better? No, <laughs> no. I, yeah. I, I mean, I don't I don't think about it. I um uh, I, I I really don't. I mean, I don't I don't wish her ill will. Uh, but I don't necessarily right. wish her good things either. I just don't wish. I, um, I, I forgive and I've moved on. Um, I, I, I guess I can say this. I, I still want her to eat, just not at my table. Um, if that makes yeah. sense. I don't, yeah. I don't have any. No. I hope she's not hurting people. Right. Right. That, yeah. But that, right. not for her own sake, for other people's sake. Right. And gosh, the, just the so twisted that if she is still preying on people, it's the church's fault. Yeah. Like that's, oh I man, I agree that that hurts. Yeah. That hurts. So sheltered, but not protected, learning to love, forgive and heal after emotional and sexual abuse. What's, what's the most advantageous way for you uh, in purchasing this book? Is Amazon the best bet for people yeah, or going a- Amazon. to your website or what? Yeah. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it's not an advantage to me in any way, only because I, you know, anybody that's written a book knows you don't make money from it. But any money I have made, yeah. any profit is donated to a non or non um, nonprofit organization anyway. So the easiest, the most advantageous way to the listener is going to Amazon and uh, ordering it direct through there. It's on yeah. Barnes and Noble. It's on a lot of different places, but the quickest way to get it is Amazon. Well, Justin, thank you for your time. And I know yeah. it's tough to talk about, but it, you can tell that it's a, it's a calling that you've embraced. Certainly appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Joey. Thanks for listening. There's a link in the show notes to our podcast Facebook page where we talk about these episodes and share some behind-the-scenes information, including guests we're booking. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thanks, Justin. That's, that was a tough story to hear, man, but it sounds like you are in a, about as good as a place as you can be. Yeah, and you know, I, I have so much respect for the, for the church. I mean, this is the first church that has reached out, and I've actually approached other churches and said, hey, is there a—not that I asked to be a guest speaker or anything like that. And again, I'm not doing it to get sales. Sadly, I feel like the world is many steps ahead of how to handle abuse, and so it's— mostly the world that's buying my books, but I really want to get it into churches. I just don't, for some reason, they see it as a threat or that I'm against churches and I'm not, I'm not against churches. I'm just against bad ones. But anyways, thank you for providing that platform because I, this has been my heart all along. It's like, I, I think it's people that have been hurt that have run away from God because they associate abuse with God and that's not God. And so I'm, I'm glad to have this opportunity to hopefully minister to maybe some, some hurting people who are still clinging on to faith.